0: You may not know unless you've been on our leadership board um, that that song is sung or prayed, um, some version of it, every time we meet um, because it is our, and you're going to see part of why from my heart in this sermon, um, uh, it, is, it is my heart that we never um, entrust ourselves or, or God's church to our vision or our wisdom or our best thoughts or, or our riches. Those are the things that, that we don't trust. Um, I don't trust our our own agendas or viewpoints or visions, and in fact, our our desire is that God's vision would be the only one that leads us, and uh, and so that's that's why we pray or sing that pretty uh, every meeting. So um, anyway, just a good encouraging reminder as always. So as troubling as it is, we unpacked in detail last week the first three verses of 1 Samuel 15. Um, The people of Israel had been commanded to attack and to destroy the Amalekites. God had judged them and found them worthy of destruction, had waited 300 years um, after they had attacked the Israelite people in the 40th year of their wandering. Um, Only the Philistines were more consistently an enemy of the Israelites um, than the Amalekites. Um, God had waited for three centuries, uh, but now their debt had come due. By the end of the sermon, we'll look at another passage that gives a hint maybe as to part of the level of um, anger that the people of Israel still felt in regards to the Amalekites. This event that we're looking at now is probably about 20 years or so. We don't know for sure, but about 20 years or so after Saul had sacrificed with Samuel, uh, failed to wait on Samuel to sacrifice in Gilgal. We studied that in chapter 13 of this same book. Um, At that point, we find out that's when God reveals to Saul, because of his sin, um, through Samuel, God tells Saul, um, you're, you're not going to be a dynasty. Your sons are not going to rule as kings. Um, I'm ending with you. When you die, the kingship is over. This passage, we're going to discover a new level, new level of Saul's disobedience is going to lead to God actually essentially firing Saul. Now, the people, by the time we're done, the people aren't going to know it, um, but God has ordained it. He has proclaimed it. Saul is no longer his anointed king um, by the end of this chapter. Uh, Verse 4, so Saul summoned the people. So remember, they'd been given the instruction to to execute the Amalekites, not war, not battle, but to execute them. Um, So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came into the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Now, we know numbers are tough in the Samuels. We've talked about that. Is this uh, meant to be? These are these numbers meant to be idioms for there were a whole lot of them. Is this a literal counting that it seems shocking if there was that many who gathered, Um, and it raises all kinds of questions. Like you had 600 men the last time you fought, and now you have 200,000. That's a pretty big leap in recruitment. Or or and why didn't you? If you had 200,000 people, why didn't you go wipe out the Philistines right after you defeated the Amalekites? And it's hard to understand. Regardless, what apparently happens is. God sends a much larger force than would be normal um, for Israel to be able to gather, um, and and this large force gathers and gets ready to execute um, the Amalekites as God has instructed. Verse 6, And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, um, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Okay, so the Kenites are another um, nomadic group. So the Amalekites were nomads, remember, but apparently they had chosen a city and had gathered in this city and had lived in this city. Now, it's very likely they took this city, and we're going to see the Amalekites were kind of uh, roving pillagers as a nomadic tribe. Everyone was afraid of them, um, and so they would move around and destroy it. Maybe they had taken over a city, had conquered it, had killed everybody in it, and now they were living in this city, um, and and, that was, and apparently the Kenites, um, who may, by the way, we don't really know, may also be known by another name, the Midianites. Now, if you're a, study, a student of the Bible, that name may sound familiar to you. Um, Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, was a Midianite. Um, Moses' wife was a Midianite. And so these were, this was a tribe of also nomadic people who was very friendly with Israel, so apparently, the key if that's who these were, the Kenites had gathered in the city of the Amalekites um, with them. And Saul somehow gets word to them, essentially saying, Listen, you don't want to be there when I show up. You don't want to still be in that city when we show up to, to, to execute everyone in the city, so get out now. Why this wasn't a hint to the Amalekites, maybe it didn't matter. I don't know. There's not a whole lot of detail here. We're just going to go with it. Um, okay, so verse 7 and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Hevelah as far as Shur which is east of Egypt and he took Agag the king of the Amalekites alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fatted calves and the lambs all that was good they would uh, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them all that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction Okay, so we, we already, as readers, we're like, okay, that's a problem, right? That's not what God told him to do. He has now changed God's plans for God. Um, the, apparently, the battle itself was pretty uneventful, which is not surprising. Remember, it wasn't meant to be a battle. It was an execution. And so the people of Israel showed up. Um, they rounded up and, and executed them. Um, that's what was as a capital punishment, not really a battle. The problem was, in an execution, you don't pillage the person who you're executing, and yet that's what Saul and the people did. Um, They keep the best for themselves. They keep the king um, alive for some reason, but what was worthless, they destroy. On their way back from the battle, it's evening apparently, and that evening the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Now, this, this chapter is going to be very real from an emotional perspective. Um, and if you've never experienced, if you've not been in ministry long enough, or you've not been a parent long enough, or you've not whatever, that you have had someone who you invested in, that you poured out time and energy into, that you poured out money and attention to, that you mentored and tried to lead for decades and then have them turn. If you've not experienced that, then this is going to be confusing to you. Why is Samuel so angry? Why is Samuel so distraught with this? What is going on in Samuel's heart that he's so crushed in this that he stays up all night crying? One, we should gain comfort in this. This is Samuel. I mean, if you listed the top five people nearest to, the, nearest to God in the Bible, Samuel would probably make that top five. And here we have a man of God, a prophet of God, a priest of God, who in his distress at the emotion, in his emotions about this collapse of Saul, he's angry and he cries. Now, now, why that emotional juxtaposition? Well, um, he's angry, but he cries. Well, that's one. Some, some people understand that very well. But one, you have to remember that for men, typically we only really engage with two emotions, angry and not angry. Right? Isn't that most common for us as guys? And so we we connect with those, we link to those. We we all emotions we kind of call one of those two things. And here you have Samuel. What's he angry about? I can tell you, he's angry about all of it. One, he's angry at God. I mean, can you imagine him staying up that night and going like, Oh, oh, I see. You repent of making Saul king. I don't know if you remember this God, but we you and I had a conversation a few decades ago. When I came to you and said, hey, they want a king, and I said, I said, that's a terrible idea. But no, you said, go ahead and let them do it. (laughs) And now you're going to regret. Is that what I'm understanding? I've spent the last 20 plus years of my life devoting myself to this man, learning to love Saul, who's, let's be honest, not super lovable. And I've learned to love him anyway, and I've learned to invest in him anyway, and I've learned to to live this out with him anyway, and now you're going to fire him. Oh, and I get to tell him. It's twice you've done this to me, God. As a child, I had to go to Eli and tell him this exact same message, and now after all these years, you're going to make me do it with Saul? I think Samuel's angry at God. I also think Samuel's angry at Saul really? How much have I invested in you? How much have I tried to help you? How much have I spent trying to help you be a good king, following the Lord? And you found some descendant of Eli to be your priest. And now that descendant of Eli, that's who you're now looking to to guide you in the Lord. Not me, him. And now you started making these decisions, and now here's the deal. You've blown it so bad that God who chose you, though you had no right to be chosen, You've decided, nah, I don't need it anymore. I don't need Samuel, and I don't need God. My way is just fine. Wow. I think he's mad at himself. I don't know about you, if, if you've ever had a relationship like that, go bad. And you spend all this time writing emails in your head all night of how you're going to confront them with this, and, you're gonna, and you imagine all these conversations you're going to have, and you're filled with anxiety and hurt, and all these different emotions that are there, and the whole time, and you're like, Really? I can't imagine what's going on here. The love that Samuel has learned for Saul, and Saul and God now tells Samuel, hey, I'm going to start over. I'm starting over with a new one. Which is, by the way, what this word regret means. Naham doesn't mean regret or can, sort of, mean regret like we mean it. If that's ever troubled you, these passages like this one, or in Genesis 5:6,5 5, 5, and 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. i always loved that sentence, by the way. That doesn't paint us nicely, does it? Always only evil continually. Pretty redundant. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. Our to, when we use the word regret, we mean, man, if I'd known this was going to happen, I never would have done it in the first place. Well, that can't be applied to God. And in fact, this word really most potently means, in fact, if you have a King James Version, your King James Version will say, repenteth. The Lord repenteth of having made Saul king. It's not that God says, man, if I had only known, I wouldn't have done it. It's that God is saying, I'm done with this one, and I'm starting over with a new one. This has run its course. This is the same concept for Eli and his family. I'm done with them. I've judged them. It's the same concept for the Amalekites. I'm done with them. The judgment has been made. I have made a judgment, and this is the way it's going to be. It, it, the, the, so if that concept, the idea of God repenting, has just made you distressed over the, like, how could that be possible? Let that, let that go. It really is just a language issue. This just means God is saying, I repent, meaning I'm changing directions now. I've been going one way, and now I'm going to go a different way. It's the same, the same word. So here we go. Here's the repentance. Verse 12, Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, blessed be you in the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Wow. Saul left the execution, the clear execution. This was, you're not supposed to pillage, you're not supposed to celebrate, that's not what this is, this is an execution. Saul leaves this execution and goes all the way across the nation of Israel, out of his way, almost no matter where the Amalekites were, this was out of the way to go from, to go all the way to Carmel to set up a monument to himself. He goes all the way to a high place to set up a monument to himself, not to honor God. He's not building an altar. That's not Saul's style. Saul is going to build a monument to Saul. He is quite literally, as we're going to talk about in a minute, building a monument to his own disobedience. And he wanted a good audience for this, so he brings the king of the Amalekites with him, his counterpart. Watch how how I'm going to celebrate having defeated you. Then he goes all the way back to Gilgal with all, with either meets the army there or goes all the way back to all that stuff. Now, someone, I love that, someone has snitched on him. Like someone went to Samuel and told him. And I've always imagined the guy's like, listen, I'm, you just got to know what happened. Just don't write it down. Don't put my name down, right? So that's why we don't know his name. Some guy snitched on him. Samuel went, Saul went and did this. Um, he's not supposed to celebrate it, it's an execution. He does this, then comes all the way back to Gilgal. This is not on the way. Saul loves to rush out and meet Samuel, doesn't he? This is the early version of trying to put the proper spin on something. He runs out to him to tell him, hey, you and me and God, aren't we such buds? We're like the three amigos, you and me and God, because I just went out and obeyed and did everything he said. Because Saul doesn't know God's already talked to Samuel. He doesn't know Samuel's been up all night, enraged, angry, hurt, crying, Um, relaying this conversation in his head, hoping, praying for Saul's repentance, all these different things that he's just been overwhelmed by, all of this. As you can imagine, Samuel shows up early in the morning. He's not slept all night. He shows up. Saul comes running out to him like some kind of happy puppy because he's just defeated his enemy and set up a monument to himself, runs out to him and starts by blessing him in the name of God. I've done everything you told me to do. Isn't that amazing? Aren't I amazing? He's literally going to celebrate his pride. He's going to celebrate his disobedience. What kind of culture celebrates pride? What kind of culture celebrates disobedience, makes monuments to it? Isn't this just, we have not changed. I'm going to make an Ebenezer to remember me and my disobedience so that we never forget my disobedience. So he comes running out. He does all this. You can imagine Samuel, angry, awkward. Saul, then why do I hear sheep? What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul, probably irritated that Samuel's not celebrating with him, says, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Yeah, this went from we're we're good buds, you and me and God, to the Lord your God real fast, didn't it? Saul is really big into the I statements when there's a celebration and really big into the they statements when there's confrontation. So he starts spouting this. And I don't, you know, I don't know about you, this, this is a tense moment. Maybe you've not been around two adult men of authority and power when they're at each other, but it's uncomfortable. If you've never seen that moment, when you have 2P2, two, two, you have the king of Israel who thinks of himself honestly way higher than he should, and you have the prophet of Israel who hasn't slept all night and is angry. There's no smiles here. There's just that awkward, angry, uncomfortable, how is this conversation going to go face on both of them? Everyone around them is like trying to figure out a reason to not be present between these two. And Saul is just spouting this nonsense. Oh, we did everything God told us to do. Look, we brought these sheep in order to sacrifice them to God. Honestly, Samuel, when you think about it, you would have destroyed all these sheep and all these oxen, but me and the people, because we're I mean, honestly, just more spiritual than you and God. We brought these things to sacrifice because we just have that high an opinion of God that we thought we'd bring all the best stuff home and and sacrifice them because really, when you think about it, we're more spiritual. And he starts going down this path, and look at verse 16, and Samuel says to Saul, just stop. Stop talking. I, I think Samuel cannot hear another word. Stop. I want to tell you what God told me last night. Now, you don't talk that way to the king. This is the king of Israel. He has an army, apparently a massive one behind him. And Samuel's going to speak to him like this in front of his men, in front of his army. And you can see Saul's face falling and going like, okay, say it. Speak. You got something to say? Say it. This is an ugly, tense moment. And I don't think if you feel that, you're not getting it. If you don't feel that, you're not seeing it. Two adult men want a king, a prophet. Coldly as king of Israel, he says, then speak. And Samuel says, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction of the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel has been up crying and thinking about this all night. This is so, I've said before, part of why as a psychologist I trust scripture is because this is real. This is how humans would engage in this situation. This feels so real to me. You can imagine what's been in his mind all night. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't want him to be king. I didn't want anybody to be king. I warned you, God, about this. I warned him that this would happen. I warned the people this would happen. I warned you that it would happen. I told you, and now you regret, and I've got to go face him just like I did with Eli. This is, and he's going to come at me, and you know Samuel hoped he would come and go like, I have sinned. That would be how we would start this conversation. But no, he's going to come back at me with all of this just... Dreams of justification and I'm not, I'm not up for it. I'm going to have to face this man. And he's going to say, he doesn't understand like Samuel does how expensive it is to try to love people. I don't know if you picked up on that yet, how expensive it is to try to follow God. Everybody thinks they want to lead everybody out there. Everybody's like, yeah, someday I'm going to grow up and I'm going to lead. Be careful. It's not always that fun being the leader If only I were in charge, we wouldn't have these problems. Really? I I, I look forward to having that conversation with you, and I will happily do it the day when God slams a door in your face, and it's a door that you didn't want to walk through in the first place. You defied God. You didn't want to walk through that door. You finally obey and walk through that door, and then God goes like, you know what? Change my mind. I'm shutting that door. What? That's infuriating, and it's so challenging. Christian, be careful that when we are so sure that we're in the right If you have assurance of your rightness, that is all the evidence you need that you're standing on sandy soil. And it's going to come down. Saul is twisting the truth to make himself seem right. He is so sure that he is beyond judgment that he has directly disobeyed the Lord, then set up a monument to his own disobedience, and then attempted to twist it so that somehow he can get the win out of this. So that somehow Samuel will go, Oh, you know what, now that I really think about it, Saul, you're right. You win... I lose. Listen to the defiance and the justification. It's going to continue. By the way, I'm curious about this phrase that Samuel starts with. Um, You are so small. Like I don't know if this is meant to be ironic. Like because he knows he just set up a monument to himself. You're oh I get you're so humble, Saul. I get it. You're so humble. Is that what this is, or is this insight? I've known you since you were hiding in the baggage. I know that the truth of this, the root of all of this, Saul, is your own insecurity. I know the truth of it. I know the truth of your frantic efforts to make everybody happy is just your own insecurity. And what you should have done was obeyed God. Verse verse 20. And Saul says to Samuel, Can you imagine this? Saul says to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on a mission which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoiled sheep and oxen. The best of the things devoted to destruction is sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. There it is again. God, it just breaks my heart every time I read that from anybody. The Lord, your God. I did obey. In fact, really, the people and I are more zealous for God than you are, really. It makes you wonder, did Saul even think that the word of God was from God or did he just think it was from Samuel. Maybe he just didn't even believe it. I don't know. Are the instructions from God or are the instructions just from me? It's one of the toughest things about trying to be a godly leader. Is this just me? Because I don't always know. What about when my word and God's word aren't in sync with each other? This is nothing more. Saul right here literally, guys, is doing nothing more than saying, I robbed a bank so I could put it in the offering plate. And justifying that. I did wrong... But I'm going to do right with it, therefore what I did wrong is not so bad. And in fact, I really, I just understand this better than you or God does. Samuel, I don't know if he's still mad, but here's what's funny. What Samuel's about to say is put in the form of a Hebrew poem. I don't know if he's been all all night writing this. I don't know if this was dictated from from God directly to him. But he essentially then creates a song, and parts of this song will be one of the most quoted sections of anything in the Bible throughout the rest of Scripture. It's going to be quoted by pretty much everybody. Samuel says, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Even if what you're saying is true, and I'm very dubious that it is, Saul... It's still disobedience. What do you to think about this for a second? Catch it. Catch this. How important is sacrifice to God? Is this a God? Is Yahweh a God who loves sacrifice? There's a whole system in the Old Testament on how to worship Him. It's called the sacrificial system. How many times in the New Testament is Jesus going to relate this? We should be living sacrifices. We should be poured out like drink offerings. Yahweh is a God who loves sacrifice. Sacrifice is a key tenet of every ethic he teaches. It is a huge deal. Sacrifice is huge to him. Huge. It is constant. He hardwired it into marriage. Marriage, the one thing I guarantee you, you will get a chance to do in marriage is Sacrifice. You may not get a chance to do any of the other fun stuff, but you sure get to sacrifice. If you've not picked up on yet that marriage is a terrible way of getting your needs and wants met, you should have talked to the manager. I don't know what to tell you, right? It is not made for, but if you want to spend the rest of your life sacrificing your needs and wants for another person, you can't do better than marriage for that. Sacrifice is a key tenet of everything God teaches for us. He sent his son. God himself came, experienced life as a human, to be a living sacrifice for us. The fulfillment of that entire sacrificial system. He is the Passover lamb. He is the sacrificial goat. He, is, he fulfills the entirety of all of that. That's him. That's how big a deal sacrifice is to God. And God still prefers obedience to sacrifice. This is not some simple, like, uh, you know, sacrifice is kind of a thing, but I like, I, like, you know, I like this more. No, this is one of the most important things to God, and God says, and I still prefer obedience even over sacrifice. When you rebel against me, you might as well be casting spells. Witchcraft is always a funny one to me, because it's like, okay, here's a list of the sins I've committed, and here's the few that I haven't. And murder's in there, right? I mean, let's use Jesus' example of like just hating someone bad enough that you would murder them if you could. Okay, yes, then yes, probably. But, but besides that, right? The, I haven't actually physically killed an innocent person. Like I, haven't, I haven't done that, right? But, but I know how. I, I could. With the sin of witchcraft, I'm like, I don't even know if I would do it right. Like, I don't know if I know how to, how to witchcraft. Like I don't, I don't think Harry, reading Harry Potter counts. Like I don't think that counts as it. And I don't... I don't know what I don't know what to put there. Like, I'd like i like, I don't I don't even know how. I'd have to like do a bunch of research before I could commit that sin. Right? You, you follow? And he's saying rebellion is just as bad. That I've done. When you when you rebel when you go like, hey God, I hear what you're saying, but you know what? Mm, not so much. God's like, wow, that's like witchcraft presumption. How about this? So you'll know, he lowers the bar then to presumption. Rebellion is here. Presumption is just me deciding when and how. I don't have to rebel against him. I just get to decide when and how I obey. That's presumption. I'm going to you know, I obey when I want to. And he says, you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of people who worship Baal. When you decide when and how to obey, you're an idolater. And, I, and which makes sense, by the way, if you're deciding when and how to obey, you're saying, I'm the one who I worship. I worship me. And, and what is an idol? It's an image of a God. Well, that's us. We're the image of God. And you're not supposed to worship the image, you worship God. And so we don't supposed to worship the image. We worship God. And when we worship ourselves, that's idolatry. And presumption is the worship of self that Saul is committing. At minimum, Saul is committing the sin of presumption, maybe even just straight up defiance. This is shocking. How powerful a statement. A God who loves sacrifice says, more than sacrifice, I want obedience. This is mission partial. You don't get it. And, and he says it in this poetic form, hoping maybe Saul now gets it. I also have to comment on this uh, application is sometimes tough. Application is an important part of any sermon. And when you're teaching ancient Hebrew covenantal literature, histories type stuff, sometimes the application is tough. You got love a day like today, it's not too tough. Sometimes it's tough. The character of God is our goal. What can we understand about Him? What is revealed about Him? The God who loves sacrifice wants obedience. Here's, there's, it, the, the, the application is probably already in every one of our brains. Every one of us knows where we are disobeying or living presumptuously. And here's the deal. Emotions don't cancel out disobedience. And love does not excuse it. And the desire to experience physical pleasure with someone does not cancel out disobedience. Pride is not somehow a resolution for disobedience. In fact, typically it's the root of it. How do we need to apply this teaching? I don't know specifically for you. I know it involves this. You trust, you listen, you obey, and you trust some more. And when you say, what is it in my life that I know right now I don't trust God enough to obey him in? You may need to write that down. I'll give you a second and a minute if you've not thought of it yet. There is no way to vindicate ourselves, rationalize ourselves, justify ourselves, or buy ourselves out of the failure to obey God. Here's what's wild. Apparently, we can't even sacrifice our way out of disobeying God. Praise God that Christ created the solution for it through his sacrifice. He paid the just penalty for our disobedience. Otherwise, and I want you to hear this. I think we minimize this sometimes. Otherwise, we would face, without filter or veil, the wrath of a God who prefers obedience to sacrifice. And we're not very good at obedience. This understanding of his character, when I wrote this down, I was like, "This this is as true as it gets. This understanding of his character would cause me to tremble in fear every day if it wasn't for Christ. I know how bad I am at obedience. I know my ability to justify and rationalize. I know this about me. And if I had to face God without Christ, a God who loves obedience without sacrifice, what hope would I possibly have? Sacrifice? Nope, that's off the table. I can't cancel that out with that. Only his sacrifice. It is the grace. I'm telling you this first before I take a second for us to sit in silence and pray about God creating a clean heart in us. In the grace Christ purchased for me, I am free to obey even as poorly as I do. Praise God. God, help me and have mercy on me. So I'm going to give us a moment to consider in our own lives and then pray for God to teach us this. So let's take a moment. Father, we probably don't actually need much time in our hearts to know where we disobey. Most of us know. Where we've decided my way is my way, and my way is a better way. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from disobedience, protect us from rebellion, protect us from presumption. God, thank you that your grace is sufficient for when I do so, so badly, that you are still so faithful. Father, I pray that you would help us to learn to live in obedience to you, to hear and to obey, that we would trust and listen and obey. Only you can empower this in us to grow and learn in this more and more. Thank you that your son has paid this price. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Verse 24, and Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of your Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Understand it from God's perspective. In my opinion, as of right this moment, Saul is not the anointed king of Israel. He's fired. What Saul wants here, I want to read repentance into Saul here, but this little section and the next section I think convinces me it's not there. Saul wants to be restored. Here's how I read it. Could we just forget about this whole thing if I apologize? If I admit that I was weak, not a rebel, not presumptuous, I was just weak. Listen, I was just swayed by sinners. That's my fault in all of this. The people convinced me to sin. It's not my fault. Could we just forget about all of this? A brokenhearted maybe attempt, but he's not accepting God's judgment. Verse 27, without a word, Samuel turns to walk away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. It's hard to understand if this is a misunderstanding, if this is violence. Um, Alistair Begg points out, this is a big deal for Samuel in particular, and we're supposed to be drawn to it because robes are a big deal in Samuel. In fact, there are whole doctoral theses that are good. I was fascinated on uh, clothing in First and 2 Samuel. And robes have a very fascinating particular role. You'll remember, he is known, Samuel is known for his robes. Do you remember this in 1 Samuel chapter 2? Samuel is ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Isn't that sweet? I I don't presume that this is one of his mom's robes that Saul just tore, but still, robes are significant. In a few chapters, Saul is going to literally commit the sin of witchcraft, Um, And when he does to seek to speak to the dead Samuel, they're going to recognize the dead Samuel by his robe. Maybe it's got a big tear in it. I don't know. It's a big deal. Saul and Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, Saul, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned after Saul, and Saul bowed to the Lord. I have no idea why Samuel gave in to this. The Bible doesn't tell us. This, This is, I think, the correct interpretation tool for what's going on with Saul. Saul is no longer king, but he doesn't want the people to know it. So he says, what I need to do is, I need you and I have just had this fight over here. Probably a lot of people saw it, And I need you to now walk back with me as though we're buddies and then let me bow before God in your presence so the people will still see me as king. I don't think this is true repentance on Saul's part. I think this is purely pragmatic. Saul doesn't want to lose his spot as king yet. And for some reason, Samuel decides to go with him and let this charade happen. I don't get it, but it's there. Saul admits his sin, but he's remorseful for about half a second. What he's really concerned about is his honor and his appearance, and he wants to look good bowing. What's about to happen also, you need to understand the Jewish people, what they think of Amalek. Remember, I mentioned that the Amalekites were the only next to the Philistines, more um, hateful and destructive. Every year at Purim, um, which, is, which is when the Jewish people every year still to this day celebrate the victory when God set them free um, through the work of Esther. If you don't know that story, you can go read it, the story of Esther when God set them free of the, of the fact that they were all going to be executed by the Persian Empire, um, if not for the work of Esther, they would have all been wiped out as the biggest risk, the biggest moment of of danger to the Jewish people until um, Hitler's Germany. Um, Every year they read this passage from Deuteronomy in remembrance of this. I'm about to explain why. They read this, Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as he came out of Egypt. Every year they want to be reminded of this how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind, and he did not fear God. So it sounds like Amalek may have caught up with the weak and wounded and sick and old of the Jewish people and slaughtered them. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you and the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget so Saul bows, the people see this, Agag, which seems to be a title, he's the king of the Amalekites, um, probably a title, it's, it like Pharaoh is a title, we don't know exactly what his name is, but there's a real person who goes either by the title or name Agag, and it means to burn or to set aflame, which probably tells you a little bit about their culture, right? Um, Agag is remembered, this one through legend is remembered as brutal, there's no other outside historical reference to him so Samuel now takes on the role of executioner that Saul refused to do. Verse thirty-two. Then Samuel said, "Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites." Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, "Surely the bitterness of death is past." He thinks they're not mad anymore. They're you know everybody's calmed down after the execution. And Samuel said, "As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women." And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Clearly, a sacrifice. A he hacks him to pieces in execution. This is not a war. He doesn't hand him a sword and say, let's test it out. He just executes him, which is what Saul was supposed to have done. By the way, some rabbis teach that the night that Agag was captured instead of killed is the night that he actually conceived a child. The descendant of that child would be Haman, the one who puts all the people at risk in the book of Esther. It tells us in Esther that Haman was an Agagite, an Agagite, Agagite. Um, which means uh, that he was a descendant of Agag. And so that that disobedience is why Israel was nearly destroyed under Esther. It's hard to know the exact, exactly how that is. But I also have to tell you the whole sad story, this whole broken, strange, uh, sad story that we read and will continue to read as we see Saul go from being someone who we want to try to believe in into someone who we just cannot anymore justify having any confidence in him. He's going to turn against God and God's people Um, this whole sad story, but as a deeply relational person, let me show you something. This last little section is so heartbreaking to me. Then after all of this, you can imagine he's just killed Agag. The people are celebrating. Maybe they're still celebrating Saul because they don't know he's not king. Then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul and Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. For the next few decades, these two men will be separated by 10 miles. And yet they're not going to see each other. And at no point is Samuel going to fully heal from the grief he has with Saul. For the rest of his life, Samuel is going to grieve over Saul even though they're 10 miles apart. And nothing is ever. they are never going to be reunited. In fact, here's the amazing part. And very weird, is that after Samuel's death, they will be reunited. That's a story for another day. Soon Saul will go from being a man we're confused by and grieved for, and he will turn against God and God's anointed. Does Saul learn the lesson that the rules apply even to kings? He does not. Um, But he will end up facing a man who may be more than anyone else until Christ will learn what it means to wrestle with obeying God. One of our great examples of being fully human is going to be David. David. And by the way, it's going to be interesting. There's going to be a moment in David's life where just like Saul tore Samuel's robe, David is going to cut a piece out of Saul's robe. And seeing the difference in the way these two men respond to that moment is going to give us insight into what it means to wrestle with obeying the Lord. And we will wrestle with them with that when we get there. So if you will, Stan, I have to assume that any of us who are Christ followers this truth, though this has been a little more of one of those pointed sermons than others because of the nature of this passage, that's meant to make us feel discomfort, that's meant to make us feel um, all these emotions in the midst of it, that's, that's written to do that, and then to recognize in the end there is a God who says, you trust me enough to listen and obey. That's your job. The sacrifice part, it turns out, is his job. And then we, when we learn to do that, he may call us to sacrifice or not. He may call us to live out in a different way or not. But in this situation, what we've got to be doing is looking at our lives, evaluating our lives like David will and say, look at my life, evaluate it with me, and create a clean heart in me. Renew a right spirit. That'll be our prayer. I want to read some stuff from, from the Apostle Paul here as a wrap up our time. But as we have this time of invitation, the hope is you're wrestling with God right now through the power of the Spirit. And that you can do that up here. You can come and pray. You can do that where you are. You can head over to the prayer corner and pray with someone over there. If in the wrestling match with where you're going to live out church, you've decided here and you've talked with uh, uh, Lance and the rest of that team and you want to come up and join our dysfunctional family this morning, you can do that. Um, let, me, let me read this to you from Romans 12 and then from Romans 16. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been named to all nations, according to the command of the Eternal Father to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The very words of God.